Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear God's good word to us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's good to be together, isn't it? but I, have you ever wondered why we're here? Not like, not like here on the planet. Um, that seems a bit much to start off the morning. But uh, here, here, like why we're gathered here together as the church in this space. Because I can guarantee whether you're a new Christian or you're just beginning to explore the Christian faith or you've been walking with G- Jesus for years, we've all pondered this question, maybe even when your alarm went off this morning and you gauged as to whether it was truly a good enough reason to get out of bed to be here this morning. Why? Why does the church exist? And what's so fascinating when you really think about it is that the church is is ubiquitous, isn't it? It's it's almost in every country made up of, of countless culture and cultural representations with people who speak various languages, and the church is doing all kinds of things. I mean, the church is engaged and sometimes runs and sometimes even started hospitals. The church starts orphan care and, and continues down that path of orphan, orphan care, marriage care. You see the church who's many times working and helping re-entry for those who have been incarcerated. You see the church that's doing Education programs, starting good businesses, creating jobs. You see the church doing some of the most difficult reconciliation work and some of the most broken aspects of our world. You see the church engaged in behavior alteration with almost everyone, regardless of their wealth, their status, their race, or their culture, with the hope that anyone can deeply change, which is a controversial topic at its core. The church is truly astounding in its breath both in individuals commissioned and collectively engaged in the issues that make up the brokenness of our world. But why? I mean, why does the church exist? I mean, every thoughtful organization asks this question, whether you're a bank, a law firm, whether you're a cleaning company, you name it, everybody wants to know why, whether as an individual or as an organization, why do you exist? Simon Sinek, 
a thoughtful British-American author and TED sensation, TED Talk sensation, in his book, Start With Why, he says this is one of the most important questions. You cannot find a greater question for any individual or any organization than to answer the big why behind what you do. And if we miss this answer, if we fail to answer why the church exists, I think we will miss some of the greatest joy in what it means to be the church and who God's called us to be and whom God has wired us and gifted us to be in the midst of a broken world. You see, we're a people with a purpose. We are sent with a purpose. But what is that purpose? Why do we exist? Why does the church, why do we gather together in the name of Jesus when we're convened and commissioned in his name when we go to our various vocations and callings? Well, there's one book that if it had not been written, one book that if we would have never had access to, it would have left us in utter mystery to answering that question. There's one book that if it hadn't been written, we'd have left our origin story in the dark. We've been confused concerning answered the question around the big why. One book that if it ceased to exist, I would propose that the church as we know it would cease to exist. And the book where you find the answer to the big why behind the church is none other than the book of Acts, a book that we're going to be exploring now a majority of this year. The book of Acts is an historical narrative, an historical narrative that talks about the beginning formative years of the early church. Those first followers of Jesus are wanting to know why the church is here. What is our mission and how is Jesus going to fulfill his promise as he made in Matthew 16 to never let his church falter such that even the gates of hell will not be able to stand against its forward momentum in attacking death and the, pl- the, the, the ploys of evil. How is Jesus going to do this? And you see, when we come to Acts, we find not only history, but we find our story. This is our history. We can own this as a part of who we are and why we are. It's written based on eyewitness accounts of real people in history. People with real names, real children, real doubts, real questions, real wrestlings, real trials, real struggles. People a lot like you and me, just at a different point in time. And all of those experiences, they're brought together by a thoughtful inquirer by the name of Luke. Luke had already done this for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the gospel account that bears his name. But now in Acts, he focuses on the church. He digs deep. He does his research. We see geographical markers as he's reminding us, this isn't something that I made up. This is something that's happening in history that's very concurrent to his life. But for us, we can look back and say, yes, this happened in space and time. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3 Uh, Luke reminds us that Jesus revealed himself, resurrected the apostles with what? Many proofs. They had doubts and questions just as much as we did. It wasn't like they were naive and thought that dead people came back to life. They knew that dead people stayed dead. They needed proofs as much as we did. And this is based upon eyewitness accounts. This is history and a historical account of real people discovering the mission of Jesus for the church. And we get a front row seat to this bridging book. You see, Acts is so helpful. I'm I'm just really excited. But Acts is so helpful in helping us connect the Old Testament with the New Testament. It helps us connect what was uniquely driven through the Jewish people, now including Gentiles in the world. What was centered in Jerusalem now heads to Rome. What was anchored in Israel now encompasses the world. There is something magnificent that Jesus is doing through his church. And because there's so much learning and sharpening happening in the early church, so much discovery. Not everything we read in Acts is a one-to-one correlation. 
okay? It's not like we're reading one of the Apostle Paul's letters and when he gives us a command, it's timeless for you and for me. But we see instead when we're walking through Acts, we find principles and patterns in this narrative. Full of failures of the early church, just as there are failures of local churches today, and successes. And so we're looking for these patterns. Because, for example, you notice at the end of chapter 1, the apostles... Because Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus, there was 11. And now to bring in a 12th to now symbolize they are the true people of God. The 12 tribes represented those centered on the Messiah, Jesus. They're trying to figure out who this 12th leader is going to be. And so they cast lots, which is an old form of dice. Now, is that how we make decisions in the church now? It's like, mm, should we use KJV, NIV? Bring out the dice. No, we do not <laughs> do that. Okay, and so we have to come to the text and come with helpful framing, but I don't want you to get worried, okay? I don't want you to get nervous. We're going to navigate that together, and if I haven't said it already, I'm really excited because we're going to learn our story, our history. This is true of us. If you find yourself in Jesus Christ and his church, this is us. Love that show. <laughs> and how it should inform our mission and our everyday lives. Now, don't get sidetracked here as much as my excitement may let us, um, what truly excites me isn't just what we are doing, okay? Right here at the beginning, in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke tells us that his gospel account, remember that was his part one to Theophilus, it captured all that Jesus began to do and teach. And what he's insinuating is that even though this is what's happening in the church, it's Jesus who's doing it through the church. Jesus is continuing his work through people like you and me, through the apostles, through the church, in history, and even today. So, before we get to all of that, um, we start where Jesus lays out our mission. The big why behind the church. I mean, these early church leaders, they'd walked with Jesus for three plus years. They'd seen him crucified, experienced him resurrected, and now they're, they're wanting to know what's next for your church, this movement you started, that you're at the head of Jesus. Why are we here? What do we do now? And to get an answer to that question, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. You can find our passage, if you are using one of our community Bibles, on page number 909, 909. Well, we find the apostles, you know, 11 minus Judas, right? The 12 minus Judas. With Jesus on this little hill called Olivet. Having been there, it's beautiful. You can oversee a bit of old Jerusalem. And we look down in verse 12. It reminds us that it's right there next to Jerusalem. And they're standing before their rabbi, their Lord, who was murdered by Roman and Jewish leaders. But not even death could hold him down. And they're standing there before their resurrected Lord. They're touching him. They can see him. They're talking to him. He's truly the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. All of the promises are coming to the climax in Him. And what's the question on every apostle's mind as they're standing there before Him? They ask, Lord, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So are you going to make Israel like she was with all of her beauty and all of her grandeur? Is now the time that Israel will be great again? Is now the time where all those promises of old will be fulfilled? But even after all these years with Jesus, they still miss the mission. <laughs> and it doesn't surprise us because we do too. They miss this big why. John Stott, one of the greatest Christian leaders of our 
day. He writes this about their question. The verbs, we're going to use some of our grammatical language that we learned in grade school, right? The verb, the noun, and the adverb of their sentence all betray doctrinal confusion about the kingdom. So a deep misunderstanding about what God is doing in the world and his kingdom. The verb restore shows that they were expecting a political and territorial kingdom. The verb, or the noun Israel, that they were expecting a national kingdom. And the adverbial clause at this time, that they were expecting its immediate establishment. And Jesus' response here makes their misunderstanding so explicit. In terms of the timing, Jesus responds to them the way he has time and again throughout his gospel accounts. He says, listen, 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 it's not about you to worry about when these things are going to happen. Stop trying to bring about predictions. Stop trying to worry about when all this is going to take place. That's not your focus. You're going to get sidetracked. That's not the mission. God the Father, he's got all that set up. Don't worry about that. And then you get to verse 8, and he says, but. It's a, con a strong, contrastive conjunction. This isn't an and or an or, but a but, okay? So as we think about our conjunctive options here, this isn't an and, meaning, yeah, you're partially right, and this. It's not an or, either or, you make your pick. It's a but, meaning they deeply misunderstood what the mission of the church is, and I'm going to give you an alternative. Why I started the church, Jesus says. There can be deeply, deeply flawed misunderstandings of what the local church is for. We can completely miss the boat. And God's got something so much bigger. It doesn't exclude Israel, but it's just when we just focus on Israel, when the apostles were just focusing on Israel, they were being so anemic with God's world-sized vision for his mission. And so Jesus, is, he's about to give them this alternative. And in verse 8 we read, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you power in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Why? Right here. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, and all Judea, okay, and Samaria, whoa, and to the end of the earth. What are you talking about? Like, this is, becomes a major paradigm shift for the apostles. Like, if, if you've been in the church for a while, this is kind of a duh moment. If you've heard anything about Christians, you know Christians love to tell people about Jesus anywhere and everywhere. But for the apostles, this is a huge paradigm shift. It's not just anchored and centered in Israel, but this is something that now God is using his people to go and engage the world. The world's not coming to Israel. Now God's people are going to the world. It's a total reorientation. And they're to be witnesses of Jesus, the true Messiah to the world, which of course includes Israel. And then after Jesus kind of drops this huge mind bomb on them, they watch as Jesus physically resurrected, now physically ascends up into heaven. Whom they touched, who they'd seen alive, he's now ascending into heaven before them. And while, while they're blown away, not only by what is happening with Jesus, but what Jesus had just said to them, I can imagine their mouths are kind of dropped open, maybe a look of bewilderment on their face. These two guys in white robes, this is code language for angels, okay? These two guys in white robes come up to them. It's not like just... Two guys with white robes are always walking around. No, no, these two guys with white robes, angels, they say to, remember, these are real people. This isn't just like a neat little story. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, another James, Simon, who's a real zealot, and Judas, not Iscariot, right? Not that guy. 
And these two angels come up to them and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand? You know, it's kind of, what are you looking at up in heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, remember, Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for you. Remember, Jesus said that unless I go, I can't send the helper. Remember, Jesus said that when I ascend, I'm going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. But for you, now, don't worry about the time. You've got a mission. It's time to get on with the mission. And what is that mission? Um, The mission that's been at the heart of the church from then and remains at the heart of the church today. The mission we together are called to embody. Well, you and I, this church and every church across the globe is called to embrace this. We are sent as witnesses of Jesus to everyone everywhere. And I know, I know, I know, I know that can be like a head nod moment. But just sit in the robust nature of this, okay? We're people sent. We have a purpose. We don't have to just figure it out. Jesus has made it very explicit. And that purpose is to be witnesses in word Indeed, leveraging our whole lives, every bit of who we are now commissioned individually and convened collectively so that everyone everywhere might have the opportunity to hear, see, and experience our great and glorious good Jesus through us with the opportunity to surrender all the other false religions and philosophies. Jesus is sending them because who he is is the way, the truth, and the life. And that other ways only lead to damnation and corruption and brokenness and fragmentation. Like this is the lifeline for the world. And for those who embrace him, for who he is exclusively, the son of God, seated at the right hand of God the Father, they can call him their Lord and Savior. I mean, this is why the church is here. And Jesus makes this explicit in every single gospel account. Look with me, and here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In Luke chapter 24, verse 46 through 48, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you. In the midst of his resurrection, he's saying this before them, physically resurrected, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And this is reiterated over and over and over throughout the book of Acts and then explicitly stated by the apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 42 through 43. And he, speaking of Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness. All of scripture has been pointing to him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so today, our mission, our big why, no matter where we are, what we do, who we're talking with, we're sent as witnesses of Jesus to everyone, everywhere. And and, and 
Understanding the mission brings a lot of clarity as to what the mission ultimately isn't, doesn't it? For one, it means, as I was processing this, it means we aren't called by Jesus to only care for those who know and believe in Jesus or even primarily to care for those who know and believe in Jesus. Is that important? Of course. Does Jesus command us to do it? Yes, of course. It's crucial. But if that's all we do is just care for one another, period, then we've missed the mission. We've missed it. If it's just about you and me sitting in this room right now, then we've missed it. Jesus didn't call us to just remain together. We're called to be sent. God has you at your workplace. He has you at you in your neighborhood, in this particular city, for a whole host of reasons, but his mission for you, for us, is very clear. You and I have been called to him to be sent to people who do not know or who have yet to believe and embrace Jesus and the beauty and the grandeur that when he is our true king, our Lord, our savior, what it means to live under his reign. He longs to bring human flourishing both now and eternal life. But it's only for those who embrace him. When we grasp Jesus' mission for you and for me, then we understand we aren't called by Jesus to only pursue justice for the down and out and even primarily to make the ethic of God's kingdom realized. Is that important? Of course, crucial, undeniably. But Jesus didn't call us to now transform the world with a new ethic exclusively. We're called to a person, Jesus, who comes with a new ethic, but he's at the center Otherwise, we have a whole new legalism that only enchains and emburdens the world and leads to another form of death and hypocrisy. We're witnesses of him, not just another way. We came bearing witness in our deeds, in our words, to the truth, the life, and the way to human flourishing. Jesus is not just a social good for the common good, but he's the uncommon good for the best good of our city that leads to us chasing the common good of our city. He calls us to conversion, a shedding of false religion and idolatry and submission to him alone, for there is no other name by which we are saved. He's the one who offers the best life now, not a life without suffering, not a life that's consumed with comfort, but still the best life when we think the sum total of what it means to follow him and then a life into eternity. We should stand for justice always but especially because that gives us the platform and the plausibility for the good news of Jesus, the one who has satisfied God's justice on our behalf and will one day come as he ascended and make justice perfectly known this world over. The, the, the slain lamb will come as the roaring lion and finally make all wrongs right. You see, when we understand Jesus' mission, then we understand we aren't called by Jesus to only socialize and pursue people who look like us, live like us, or near us, or act like us. I mean, is it important to engage people who are like you? Yeah. Is it good and crucial to leverage your relationships and commonalities to get to know, to love one another, and to share the gospel? Yes. But Jesus, he isn't seated just over Israel. He isn't just seated over white America, or black America, or Rome. Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father over the world. And that is his exhaustive love is for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes on him should have everlasting life and not perish. You see, this mission, it's driven by God's exhaustive love. 
inexhaustive love. There should, there should be no square inch in Kansas City or downtown where we overlook proclaiming this good news in word and deed. There's no room for, in God's mission for God's people to have any trace of racism, classism, or nationalism. It's much too big for that. We're sent as witnesses of Jesus to everyone, everywhere. This is why the church is here. I love the story I heard recently about William Booth, uh, the founder of the Salvation Army. There was a large uh, anniversary party for the amazing work that God was doing through this organization. And he was too sick to come himself. But he wanted to just send a telegram to everybody who was gathered together, celebrating what God had been doing through the Salvation Army. And while they're all standing there gathered together, the telegram had just one word on it. Read before everyone gathered together, it read, others. Exclamation point. Others. Like that is at the heart of God's mission. I love the way that William Temple, a British bishop of the Church of England, he said it well when he said, the Christian church is the one organization in the world that exists purely for the benefit of non-members. So I want to ask us this morning, does that, does that line up with your understanding of the mission of the church? Why you engage this church? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I want you to know it is our heart's cry that you come to know the exclusive joy that comes in being known and knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I want you to know that this church exists for you. It's not just a place where the, those who are members are self-serving. No, 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 no. We become members so that we are more you know, guided together and, and collaborating for others. And if you are a Christian and you're engaging this church, have you embraced the church's Jesus-given mission? We aren't left to confusion here. Have you oriented your life around our Jesus-given mission? It's not just a tack on. It's not something we consider after we set our goals. But if this is why we're here, this is why we gather together in the name of Jesus, this is why we are commissioned out into our various vocations and callings, is that true for you? If you've become jaded with the church, is that because you've lost Jesus' God-given mission for the church or experienced a church that did not embrace Jesus' God-given mission? Do you see yourself as sent? Because if you do, it'll transform everything in your life. The way you pray, yes, it'll be... Your prayers will definitely revolve around caring for care and comfort and healing and the pursuant of common good. Yes, yes, yes. But your prayers will also come begging and pleading for those who yet to know Christ would come to know the beauty of Jesus in their lives. That they would surrender to Christ and Christ would be their Lord and their Savior. That conversion would take place. That there would be a shedding of false religion and false philosophy that leads to destructive behavior. It'll inform how you go to work, how you navigate your time of leisure. I mean, as we saw over the past couple of weeks, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen if you didn't get a chance, we talked about how our time, our lifestyle, and our attention look simply different when Jesus is at the center. And we start to ask different kinds of questions like, how can I leverage everything I've been entrusted for this mission? 
You'll ask God to help you live on mission at work, in your neighborhood, in your family, and with your friends. You'll have a holy burden for those who don't know Jesus. Is that what your life looks like? Maybe you've been distracted. Maybe you've been engaged in this or that. And now's the time to kind of realign with what Jesus has defined as the mission. Have you oriented your life around our Jesus-given mission that is encompassing of the world today, impacts our everyday, but looks into eternity? And listen, I, you know, as I was thinking about this robust mission that kind of sets our journey into the book of Acts as the church is trying to figure out what it looks like to live this out, in the very beginning stages, it seems a bit overwhelming. <laughs> and what's so beautiful is that Jesus hasn't abandoned us to this mission on our own. And next week, we're going to explore where we get our power to accomplish this mission in the person of the Holy Spirit. You, you got, we have to understand, so often we divorce the Holy Spirit from Jesus' God-given mission. But they're, they're married together. They're inseparable. And then the next week after that, we're going to talk about how Peter models how we articulate our message that we proclaim. Our proclamation, our witness is not merely word. It encompasses deed in our whole life, but it never excludes word. And so we're going to look at how Scripture actually guides us in the proclamation of that message. I'm really excited. Um, and, And really, I can't think of anything better to give our lives to. And here's why, because nothing will stop our mission. Like if you, are, if you don't want to be invested in anything, like any other perspective out there in the world, nothing will stop our mission. Jesus made the promise in Matthew 16 that nothing will be able to stop what he's doing through his church. And that's not to say that local churches or various local churches have made big mistakes. Actually, it's in spite of those mistakes. Isn't that just a greater testament to God's faithfulness to bring about his mission that failures, even the failures of this local church, right? We failed. We're not perfect. You find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it, right? That's kind of the slogan. (laughs) But every church is a bit broken, and yet despite our brokenness, God continues forward with his mission. I mean, think about this. Judas betrayed Jesus, and it didn't stop the mission. The leadership challenges in the early church I mean, starting a new movement and figuring out who's going to lead it and what's going to look like, there are no greater challenges than this. And then there was suffering, persecution, no struggle seemed to be insurmountable. Think about this, a ragtag group of 120 people made up of men and women who the whole world thought were lost causes, who gave themselves to someone who was mocked on a Roman cross that surely couldn't be alive. And yet, 2,000 years later, look at where the church is. Across the globe made up of people of all kinds of cultures, speaking all kinds of languages, but they're all centered on one thing, not just an ethic, as beautiful as it transforms their ethic, but the person of Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection, and how he's transforming the world in his kingdom. And we look around the world today, Praia Kirche in Germany, in East Berlin, the good work that they're doing both and their art curation or caring for refugees and the proclamation of the gospel of people who are now repenting and converting from Islam to Christianity because of the beauty of Jesus and his grace. You look at the beautiful work happening in China, this amazing resurgence of the Chinese church. You look in 
the Middle East with the wicked work of ISIL and ISIS, and yet so many are coming through these amazing moments of giving their life to Jesus, some even having dreams where Jesus himself is inviting them, please come. Like it's astounding what God's doing around the world. And then you get here at Christ Community with a, a church of five campuses across the city, not the only church, for sure. God is doing amazing things. There are a lot of churches across the city. And then you get to our campus here downtown. And God's doing some amazing things. It was two weeks ago, um, during our 8.30 service, Charlie, many of you know and love, uh, a member of our church, who's consistently outreaching his neighborhood, I mean, seeking to be, tell people about Jesus and, and help them in their current pains. Well, he had some severe physical pain in first service last week, and such that we had to stop mid-service and call the paramedics. And we were crying together. We were praying together over Charlie. And he's okay now. He's here with us today. But Charlie wrote a letter because he just felt so loved and deeply cared for by so many folks, the church being the church. And amidst everything he wrote in this letter, I just want to highlight one aspect of his gratitude. He writes, What I was shown at that time was I hope more than enough to make God smile as he got a chance to watch his kids take care of their brother. What I saw that day gave me all the hope I need to say that if the lost, the broken, and hurting would just walk in those doors, this entire city would find the face of God. So why church? We're sent as witnesses of Jesus to everyone everywhere. And when that happens, it shapes who we are when we're at work and the work we do and the very quality of the work we do as well as the conversations we have with each other at work. And it shapes the very fabric of our community when we convene together in the name of Jesus such that stories like Charlie's can happen. And hopefully more and more story, stories like Charlie can happen. And it's in those moments, don't we just say, oh, Jesus is seated on his throne. Isn't it in moments like that where you say there is something beautiful about the way God is still working in his world? That's why we gather together, to make much of Jesus. The whole host of both word and deed making much of Jesus. So, so that our faith begins to shape the very fabric of this world. We're more lost and broken people. People who look like you and me, people who don't look like you and me come to know Jesus and surrender to him and find the joy of embracing him. I mean, is this the kind of mission you've oriented your life around? Have you embraced Jesus' why for this church? Are you making much of Jesus everywhere Jesus has you? Is there, is there anything better that you can give your life to than this? It's impossibly, it's this mission that seems impossible from the outside looking in and yet nothing can stop it. You see, Jesus is coming again. And he's gonna come again in the same way he ascended, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And may we be found faithful and may we be found fruitful in carrying out this mission. And looking around at so many of you, I feel confident that by the power of the Spirit, we can so let's join him, all right? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that you have not left us 
and confusion as to who we do all this for. Ultimately is to make much of Jesus. And that, of course, involves a whole host of things and loving one another and caring for one another and being engaged in justice. But, but ultimately, all of that is a part of the big picture of being a witness and making much of Jesus who has brought clarity in these issues. God, may we, may we all the more surrender to your mission. May you bring about a revival in our downtown. And may you start with this campus. May you start with me. That we might more utterly surrender, might more utterly orient every aspect of our lives around this 2,000-year-old mission centered on the person and work of Jesus that actually even goes further back than that. God help us. Send your helpers to us. And may we have the humility and strength to receive the help they offer. We love you, God. Help us to love you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen.